This episode is brought to you by McDonald's. Not sure you've heard of them. <laughs> Up and coming uh, little restaurant, but they're making it. They're the little engine that could. You know, the moment of bliss when you spot your fries being scooped into the carton and suddenly time slows down. I have that all the time. I love their fries. Oh, yeah. yes. McDonald's fries hit different when they're free. That's another thing I'll tell you. And when they belong to your friends, there's no better feeling than thinking you're out of fries and then you discover extra fries at the bottom of your bag or else my son still hasn't finished his fries yeah. and I'm done with mine. And uh, he used to be weaker than me so I could just take them. Yeah. Now I can't because he's stronger than me. Oh, yeah, yeah. There's no wrong way to eat McDonald's fries, but we all think our way is the best way. And I like stealing them from someone else. That's my favorite <laughs> way. Get your favorite McDonald's fries today. McDonald's, check them out sometime. They're everywhere. How's your sock drawer looking? It's messy. There's a lot of single socks. Yep. I think it's time for a little spring cleaning. Oh. <laughs> Check out Bombas. Once you try a pair, you'll never look at socks the same way again. I should know. I like my Bombas. Their spring collection has new garden party socks that bring the party to your feet. My feet have never been to a party. <laughs> They've so got sad. stripes and florals and new vintagey colored rib socks. You know, when I'm wearing Bombas, I feel like my feet are being caressed okay. and cared for in a way they never have been in my life. Hmm. Get comfy this spring and give back with Bombas. Head over to bombas.com slash Conan and use code Conan for 20% off your first purchase. That's B-O-M-B-A-S dot com slash Conan and use code Conan at checkout. <laughs> Hi, my name is Anderson Cooper, and I feel uh, kind of thrilled that I could be considered Conan O'Brien's friend. Fall is here, hear the yell, back to school, ring the bell, brand new shoes, walk in blues, climb the fence, books and pens, I can tell that we are gonna be friends. Hey there, and welcome to Conan O'Brien Needs a Friend. Started out as a simple podcast, but now it's become really a mission for me to befriend every A-list celebrity in the history of mankind, living or dead. We should start having me talk to uh, you know people that aren't even here anymore. Like today's oh. guest is Cary Grant. <laughs> Do we just find someone who's good at impersonating them, or are you just talking to silence? I think it's only um, Cary Grant. And it's always me doing both voices, and it's always me doing that really hacky Cary Grant impression from the 1960s. Judy, 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 <laughs> which apparently he never even said in a movie. I'm fascinated with bad impressions of celebrities that no one's done for 40 years. <laughs> it just makes me really happy. Well, this week again, we're talking to Cary Grant. Judy, Judy, Judy. Um, <laughs> and that's all I say. And we lose all of our listeners. There's just one listener. There's just one listener who just loves it. Can't get enough. Her name's Enid Brownschnitzel. And, she, and she's 110 years old. I just love that you talked to Carrie. Well, we're back. And my celebrity guest again is the ghost of Carrie Grant. How are you? Judy, Judy, Judy. 
Um, Sona's quit. Gorley's yeah. quit. Yeah, yeah. I'm gone. Yeah. Nothing would make Sona quit. She true. just wouldn't show, but she would still get the paycheck. That's true. She really <laughs> yeah. has, hasn't made. Oh, you she, can do that? Trust me. If it can be oh. done, Sona will do it. Okay. Um, by the way, I should introduce uh, Matt Gorley. Matt, good to see you. Hi, how are I you? I like to do, be formal. I don't like just a voice coming out of the void. Right. I, you know, I, I know that you're known t- to listeners, but- uh, I think it should be uh, shouted out oh, and shouted that. at. Uh, and also yeah. uh, the incredible assistant to Sonam of Session, because clearly she needed an assistant. <laughs> you need a lot of help to do nothing. Uh, Mr. David Hopping, how are you, David? I'm good, how are you? David, when I say Judy, 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 did, did you even know that was Cary Grant? No. Of course not. <laughs> It was a bad impression. No, I'm, in one of, I'm one of the people who stopped listening. <laughs> <laughs> How about this one? Old impressions. Mm, you dirty rat. Mm, you're the dirty rat that killed my brother. Mm. Do you know who that is? Uh, no. See, that's Jimmy Cagney. And that was the only impression that most people did <laughs> for like 30 years was the, these, and, and no one, I mean, God forbid, they don't even remember these stars anymore, but certainly no one, remembers these hack impressions. But if I watched TV in this, as, as a kid, like a mm-hmm. really little kid in like 1970, and someone came out and went, you're the dirty rat that killed my mother, or whatever, kids my age would know, oh, that's supposed to be Jimmy Cagney. Yeah. Uh, Judy, 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 oh, here comes Cary Grant. <laughs> and then how about this one, Pilgrim? Do you know who this one is right here? Pilgrim, you know who that is? Uh-uh. Okay, John Wayne. <laughs> oh, <laughs> John Wayne. What about you, Matt? Did you track all of those? Of course you did. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But I stopped recording long ago. <laughs> this is for nobody. Yeah. I wish that there was like, so, like Gourley's just uploading episodes, but it's only set for one listener and it's just you thinking people are listening. <laughs> you to know this. what I love? You know what, spoke podcast. Yeah, yeah. You know what I love is that I love the, I, I'm just loving this. I, I love bad ideas more than I love good ideas. Um, I'm just really falling in love with the notion of a, announcing a new podcast where it's Conan O'Brien d- talking to all the great entertainers who are no longer alive, and Conan will do all the voices. And I'm terrible at all of them, and no one knows what I'm talking about. I just think it's fantastic. I think it's the greatest idea ever, mm-hmm. and I put a lot of promotion behind it, and there are billboards. Check out Conan's <laughs> new podcast. Billboards? Pod- yeah, billboards. Conan talks to the great entertainers. And then it's me saying, hey, Conan O'Brien here, and I'm very excited today. We got John Wayne here. Hello, Pilgrim. It's good to see you here on the podcast. Oh, and look, Jimmy Kane, you just stopped by. You're the dirty rat mm, that <laughs> killed my brother. And as always, my sidekick, Mr. Kerry. Judy, Judy, Judy. Now come on over here, Pilgrim. You dirty rat. Judy, Judy. Well, that wraps it up for today. <laughs> and people would hate I, it. I wish that you're moving to three different chairs while you're doing it. <laughs> yeah. I'm, you, you hear me moving physically from chair to chair, and it's making a lot of noise. The, the, the office chairs are banging and smashing. Well, anyway, uh, Pilgrim, I think I'm going to talk today about uh, maybe the, uh, or would say like, well, of course, you all heard in the news that uh, too bad there there was a, a small earthquake uh, in Florida, and people were talking about that. No one was hurt, but there was an earthquake in Florida. What do you think, John Wayne? Well, Pilgrim, if the ground's <laughs> is shaken, uh, best to get in those wagons and saddle up and take off. What about you, Jimmy Cagney? You dirty rat. You had an earthquake, killed my brother. Ah, uh, earthquake killed my brother. Isn't that right? Uh, Got Cary Grant. Switch chairs. Oh, oh, oh. 
Judy, Judy, Judy. <laughs> Just the word. And the out of breath when you get there. What's yeah, that? the physicality where you're doing Jimmy Cagney, you're, you're kind of wagging your finger, but it looks like you're an old man doddering on a cane. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, and then special guests can keep popping in, you know, just uh-huh. like, uh, hey, look, it's Edward G. Robinson here. <laughs> Kids really love an Edward G. Robinson impression. Yeah, she, yeah, she, yeah, she, yeah, you mugs, Judy, Judy, Judy. All right, Pilgrim, you dirty rat, you killed my brother. Well, that's it for today. <laughs> Conan talks to the great entertainers. Now I'm going to... Uh, <laughs> If you'll excuse me, I'm going to go stand in the parking lot and wait for my Peabody Award to be delivered. I'm sure it's coming. Uh, Okay. Let's do something real. Why? Why am I cursed? I swear to God, uh, some kind of uh, spirit cursed me when I was a child and said, you will love the awful more than than the beautiful. You will. You will yeah, be that dr- tattooed on you. Yes, I just do. I just do. I love the idea of putting a lot of time and money into a waste of everyone's time. All right. <laughs> Speaking of that. Speaking of which, my guest today is an Emmy award-winning journalist. Let's see him do some impressions, and a best-selling author who hosts Anderson Cooper 360 weeknights on CNN. His new book, Vanderbilt: The Rise and Fall of an American Dynasty, is available now. He's a good man. Anderson Cooper, welcome. You're a tricky cat to read. I'm just going to say that. I didn't know. Is that true? People have said that to yes, me. Yes, yes. You're a little bit yeah. you're a little bit tricky to read because you're very reserved and you and I have yes. hung out uh, in our lives outside of the glare, the white hot glare of show business <laughs> and um, found you to be a delightful person. But also one of those people where I'm thinking, I'm just not sure. Did you, did you delete my file as you walked away? You know, uh, <laughs> you know what I mean. I, I will tell you what I think. Then I have I've had delightful times, the times that that we have hung out, and um, I've always wanted to more. And like every t- you've always said, oh, you're from Los Angeles. Let me know. And I feel like I rarely would ever do that because I don't know if you're actually if you want me to actually contact you I'm sure people contact you all the time for things and I so Anderson you're saying you're in LA and you don't have plans for dinner and Correct. you could because you have my digits my deets you could send yes. me a message that says hey Conan Anderson here then just yes. say Cooper then say 360 just so I know which Anderson right. yes. <laughs> and then uh that you that you think, uh, you know, Conan, he's at the top. He couldn't possibly be interested in having dinner. Are you insane? I would love to hang <laughs> no, out with that's, you. That's absolutely you're, what you're I an think. incredibly I, I, you're a style icon. You're, no, but I also think like you're you know you're got a, a, a beautiful family. Oh, you're, no, you're, to you're, hell, you'd oh, rather hang God, out with them. No, when, and, and they'd be welcome to come. No, I love kids. No, and, and no, I love your wife. I've no, Anderson, please, that's over. I don't hang with them okay. anymore. <laughs> that's done. <laughs> Uh, you know, that was something I did that was put together by William Morris Endeavor. <laughs> you know, that was all Rock Hudson's marriage. Right. You know, I did what I had yes, to right. do. You had Rock Hudson's managers, the son of Rock Hudson's manager. The great manager. grandson of Rock Hudson's manager. Yes. 
you know, my whole marriage to my wife and us, those pictures of us arm in arm coming out of the stork club, uh, wearing tuxedos and looking so, quote, in love. That was all bullshit. Um, no, you'd be you'd be welcome because I'm remembering, and it's just occurring to me right now, you and I were part of one of the craziest boondoggles I've ever been involved oh in. And I just I have to tell you, I want to preface this by saying this kind of thing never happens to me. It really never happens to me. But for reasons that I don't understand, I want to say seven years ago, Warner Media Turner Broadcasting said, hey, Conan, we want you to do us a favor. And I thought, well, they want me to do comedy at some event. This is going to be, okay, what, what is it now? And I was kind of rolling my eyes and they said, we, w- we want to fly you and your wife to Cannes in the south of France and we'll put you up in a really nice hotel and you can stay there for three days. I was like, oh my God, this is going to be like, what are they going to ask me to do? Because to compensate for that, they must want me to dig a trench with my hands and then fight a bear. Like this is going to be. And they said, "I said, what do I do?" And they said, "Well, walk out in front of a, a in, in front of a big crowd and sit down and have a pleasant chat with Anderson Cooper." And I said, "What?" And they said, "Yeah, that's it." And the next thing I know. I'm in the South of France and I know I sound like an incredible asshole right now. And I apologize, <laughs> listeners. I'm telling you, this never happened to me. This, this didn't happen. This doesn't happen. But I said, yes, my wife and I went, we had a lovely time. And you and I had our nice chat in front of an audience. And then you and yes. I were sitting at this incredible hotel, like looking at- The Hotel de, de Cap. Du Cap, or, the Hotel du Cap. Hotel de Cap, which is like a legendary- Yes. South of France hotel. And- and full of like Russian billionaires and models and, you know, P. Diddy or Puffy walks by, people walk by all the time. It's, it's, I, I had no business being there. I and, had, and we, and I, I had no You and I both there. did not know what we were doing right. there. And we had just done the event and we still didn't know what the hell this friggin' event was. Right, because when someone gives you something that nice, you think, okay, they're really going to make me pay on the other side of it. The next thing I know it's over. And they, I think they let us, we talked for like 20 minutes. And then yeah, they said, that's all we need, gentlemen. Now off to yeah. the Hotel du Cap and everything's on us. And I thought, what? Right. Everything's on you. It, it was, I think it's something called the Golden Lion. It's some sort of advertiser th- award oh, thing. I don't know what it was. I, I don't understand. I don't it. know what it was. And by the way, yeah. I've been there twice now I, with you and I, also Anthony Bourdain. He and I both, again, had no idea what we were doing there. And he could not believe the boondoggle that this was. Yes. And all I remember is I kept thinking, I don't belong here, but this is what I do. I was sitting there with you, Anderson Cooper. I'm just reminding you who you are. I was sitting there with you, Anderson Cooper, and you looked, you know, of course, uh, dressed to the nines. You look great. You and I are sitting there. We're having some wine and we're having this really nice meal. We're not paying for anything. We're at one of the nicest hotels in the world. And I kept thinking, well, Anderson belongs here. I don't belong here. You know what I mean? Really? Yes. That's so interesting. Because I think I'm this clown. Uh, right. at, what do you mean, right? <laughs> what the fuck was that? Right. No, you're supposed to go like, you're no clown. You're an artiste, Conan. We'll get to that later. I can insert that digitally. But anyway, it was just so amusing to me. And we had a really good talk. And I remember thinking, I'm going to see a lot more of Anderson Cooper now. We're best friends. I remember you told me at the time- I don't know if this is still the case, but at the time you were living in a firehouse in Manhattan. I still live in a firehouse. Oh my God, you live in a firehouse. You're like Bruce Wayne. Or like the Ghostbusters. (laughs) Okay. It's not far from the Ghostbuster firehouse. Yeah, you lived in a firehouse and I thought, I want to go hang with Anderson at his firehouse. 
I want to go down See, the whole, yeah. I want the whole thing. And nothing happened. None of it happened. I, well, because I never, I, I'm too shy to reach out to other people. Like I literally in, in yeah, it's it's actually kind of a, it's been an issue for me. And and like, I can't ask people for, for help about, for something. I have a bit of that I too. Why. I don't like to ask a favor. I, I, yes, I do not. I, I will do. I, I'm happy to do a favor for somebody. I do not want to ask uh, somebody for assistance. I, I couldn't even ask to apply for a TV job. I, I was a fact checker at a thing called Channel One, which was a show seen in high schools. And I realized I wanted, I thought, okay, being on air would be better. And, 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 and I want to be a foreign correspondent. And they didn't really have reporters. They had, it was sort of like a, the idea initially was like a today show for classrooms. It was in half the high schools and middle schools in America in the early nineties. And I was the fact checker. And after six months, I was like, oh, you know what? I want to be on air. Uh, I couldn't get entry level jobs at any of the networks or anything. And I said, I realized if I say to them, I want to be on air, they're going to say no, because I'm in their mind, the fact checker. And I also, you know, slightly stumble and I, I just didn't think I was meant to be on TV. And so I quit my job rather than asking them or even letting them know I have this idea of I'd like to be on camera. I quit my job. I asked the director of the show to make a fake press pass for me. I borrowed a camera that they weren't using, like a small uh, VHS or some, it was a smaller camera. And I told them, I'm leaving. I'm going to go to wars for the next few months. I'm going to shoot stories. And if you want to see them, you can take a look at them. And if you like them, you could maybe put them on air. So it was a very passive aggressive way of getting Right. But what you essentially did is you went to war zones on spec you said, I'm going to go. That is absolutely correct. <laughs> I'm going to yes. go. Some people build a spec home or write a spec script. You went to war zones and reported on missiles falling all around you on spec. On spec, yes. That was completely so Tell me more about this forged press pass. That is really pushing it, <laughs> Anderson. <laughs> I know. I mean, that's- It's actually on my wall over here. Yeah. It's, yeah. I mean, it was, you know, it, it, I was I was working for this. Well, actually, I wasn't. I was doing a spec, but- <laughs> <laughs> it was a thing. It said Channel One on it, and it had my photo, and it was laminated. It sounds and it like something. Real. When a, when I was a kid, I used to love to pretend to be a reporter if there was a home movie camera going, and I literally would put a card in my an old hat that I found, my grandfather's hat, that would say press, and I would jam it in the uh -huh. hat band and go like, "All right, I'm here. And I'm from the press." This sounds like the same bullshit. Only you're Anderson Cooper, and you were pulling it to go to a war zone. Sorry. Oh, I, just I love this. You're actually producing. I want to describe now to the audience. You just produced <laughs> all of your Ford's documents. <laughs> this, is the, this is the Ford. Oh one. my that's God. Great. It looks legit though. Yeah. Yeah. That's fantastic. See, once I had that, then I got this, which is a UN press pass. And once you have a UN press pass, you're golden. That's fantastic. That's and, and it looks to me very easy to duplicate. And that's what I'm going to do. Uh, this gives, <laughs> I just... Now I want to tell you my idea. I came up with this idea the other, uh, a, a while ago, and I keep thinking about it. If there's any kind of crime scene or any kind of disturbance going on and there's a lot of police standing around, I want to push my way to the front and hold up a card and, and just say, celebrity, what's going on? What's the deal? Uh, talk it down with me. And, and people would be so mad. I also want a siren that I can put on the top of my car 
that goes celebrity, celebrity, <laughs> and I just drive out in front of traffic and weave around and then jump out of my car and go to a crime scene and go, hey, uh, B-list celebrity, what's going on? <laughs> and then act really authoritative and people would be so mad. I'd love to film their reactions. I like the siren that says celebrity. Celebrity, celebrity, celebrity. Yeah, I think I... I I was always cognizant. When are we starting? The, is has this started? <laughs> the the podcast? Yeah. No, no. This is just okay, you and good. me. Because I didn't. There, there was no like intro music. No, no. We're or, or no, no. This is all. Or... No, this is all podcast. This is this, oh, this is, is what the this podcast is, this is, is. Content. This is content. You son of a bitch. What a. <laughs> What the hell is, what do you mean this is content? This is people seeing the real seeing and hearing no, that's the true. real Anderson. They're hearing you, you know? Okay. I want to ask you a question, and this is something I think about a lot because I see how much late night television has changed. I was wondering what you think of the news anchor because what do you think the role of an anchor is? I mean, clearly I sometimes contrast it with when Walter Cronkite famously gets the news live that you know he know everyone knows that John F Kennedy has been shot and I've watched this many times right his reaction is to take off his glasses and say the a word now official president kennedy died at you know 120 whatever 130 central standard time and lyndon johnson will be the new president and his he chokes up for just half a second and then sold, puts his glasses back on and soldiers on. And I thought anchors today would have to emote. They would have to really mm. emote or people would think something was wrong. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, I, I don't, I mean, I, I got a couple of thoughts. I obviously the, you know, when I started my intro, I grew up watching just like you, Walter Cronkite, Dan Rather, there were three broadcast networks and you know, people look back to that time and think, oh, that was sort of the golden age of, of news and things were authoritative then and they were the most trusted people in America, which in many cases they were, especially with Walter Cronkite. But in reality, when you actually look back at, you know, I think the initial newscast at CBS was 18 minutes long. Mm -hmm. I, it might have, it might have, I, I think it was 18 minutes, but it, it eventually grew longer. You know, newsrooms were made up of middle-aged white guys and like me, and uh, except, you know, not gay, uh, or at least not openly gay. And, you know, they were not diverse. Walter Cronkite at the end said, you know, th that's, that's what was the famous sign-off? Um, that's the way it is. I mean, there was only a very thin slice of the world that we were actually seeing. Yes, yeah on any given newscast. And because we didn't know anything about Walter Cronkite, uh, because he didn't really know about his private life, he didn't really know about his, you know, or any any of the folks on TV back then, to the degree you do now, it was easier to kind of project whatever you wanted to onto these people. And so I think we have more information now at our fingertips, obviously. We get a, a, a you know, a more diverse view of what is actually going on in this country and in the world. Um, it, it probably is at times too much yes, information. Yes, I was going to say, I was going to say that um, there's the yin yang of, yes, we're getting more information, but we're, God, we're getting so much information. And of course, as you know, the algorithm tends to select for the negative. Yeah. It's not even so much, I mean, it's, Negativity is what, you know, we have a, there's a thing called a ne negativity bias, which is we are all prone to 
uh, gravitate to things which are negative as opposed to those are positive. If you get, if there's a hundred tweets and you read 90, you know, you read a hundred tweets and 99 of them are, are nice. And there's the one person who's sends a mean tweet. That's the one that's going to register with you. That's the one you're going to think about and, and respond to likely. So it's, um, I, I think people say they want to see good news. The truth is there are actually a lot of good stories that are put out. And, and I can tell you the numbers usually, the ratings usually drop right. on, on those kind of stories. People don't actually really respond to those stories, even though they say that that is what they want. It's fascinating. Um, so people are saying, and this is common, can't we just have more good news? And the truth is- when you put it out there, people really don't want to see it, or they're not as interested if, if, as they are if you tell them there's a Category Five storm headed up the coast and it could be disastrous. Yeah, I mean, just if if the metric by which you're being judged is a rating point, then that the ratings will tell you that. I mean, I think there's obviously other reasons to tell stories and far more important reasons to tell stories, and so. Uh, I think it's important to have a mix, but but the role of the anchor, you know, the idea of this kind of all seeing, all knowing anchor who was the definitive voice, that was possible in a time when you really only saw them for a third, you know, eighteen minutes or thirty minutes on the screen. You didn't know much about their lives, and you really didn't have a sense of what else was going on and what stories weren't being told, um, or you didn't care about what stories weren't being told. So, I you know, I think that it's easy to kind of look back and think, oh, that's uh, that was this, you know, really a remarkable time. But but I think on the emoting thing, I'm not interested in sort of wearing my opinion on my sleeve. You know, until this last administration, I would rare. I don't think I ever referred to anybody as a liar. Um, I you know I was very. I tried very much to be in the middle of the road on things. I don't have a strong political ideology uh, on in any side, and I try to uh, you know ask tough questions of people who are Democrats and Republicans yeah. and-, and um, No, I was actually but, I was actually gonna single you out as one of the people, and there are a few who I think don't project your emotions all the time. I just think it's false. Yes. If, you're, yeah. if you're emoting all the time and project and, you know, tearing your hair out and crying on camera, uh, you know, and, or outraged all the time, which is the more common yeah. thing. To me, that's just phony. And it, it just comes off as it's a shtick and you do it every, they do it every night and it's their shtick. And the times I have ended up, you know, like tearing up on air and being unable to talk, I, you know, I, it's not something I plan right. ever. And, you know, I'm a wasp. I was taught to push all my emotions deep down inside. And that's generally how I go through my day. And that's to your credit. Uh, I believe everyone <laughs> should. <laughs> I tell my yes. children all the time, whatever you're feeling, push it further down. Uh, well, there's a great Simpsons episode where Marge Simpson is counseling Lisa to just push all those feelings deep sure. down inside and put a smile yeah. on her face. And then it bubbles up later on as creativity exactly. and incredible exactly. amounts of resentment. Uh, and, you know, often alcoholism. Conor Brian Needs a Friend is sponsored by ADT, introducing ADT Self Setup, featuring everything from motion sensors to Google Nest Cam and the Nest Doorbell with a battery or wired option. Your choice. Easily install the ADT Self Setup security system at your convenience. You don't need heavy-duty tools. And if you do need help, ADT can provide virtual assistance along the way. Self Setup from ADT grows, moves, and adapts as your needs change. You can add more products at any time, and your system easily moves wherever life takes you. It also features Nest Cams that can tell the difference between a person, an animal, a vehicle, or with the Nest doorbell, even a package. 
These things are getting so smart. Plus, on every second counts, you can trust ADT's 24-7 professional monitoring. You can view video of an alarm event and verify or cancel an alarm with just one quick tap. Now everyone can get trusted security from ADT installed your way with no long-term contracts. When the most trusted name in home security adds the intelligence of Google, well, <laughs> you've got a home with no worries. Go to ADT.com today or call 1-800-ADT-ASAP. Google, Nest Cam, Nest Doorbell, and Nest Aware are all trademarks of Google LLC. On the way in today, Sona, I was thinking about just how much has changed over the years. Yeah. You know, when I was a kid, we were all dancing the jitterbug and the Watusi. Okay. And then you grow up now and there's mosh pits and everything's gone <laughs> cuckoo. There's this new thing called rap. I don't know what's <laughs> happening anymore. But guess what? In a world full of change, there's one thing that hasn't changed. Mm-hmm. The great taste of Miller Lite. Are you with me on oh, this? Oh, yeah. I'm right there with you. Yeah. And you know, another thing that hasn't changed is that it's less Filling. Yeah. I hate a filling beer. Yeah. When I have a filling beer, I just want to sit down in a beanbag chair for six days, but not oh. with Miller Lite. So what's the best thing about the original light beer? Mm-hmm. Back in 1975, the big debate in America was what's more important, that it it's less filling, Miller Lite, or it tastes great. Yeah. The cool thing is when we all realized it's both. Okay. It's less filling and it tastes great. Yeah, all right. Everybody wins. Everybody wins. Miller Lite keeps it simple. Undebatable quality. Great taste. Only 96 calories. You don't have to choose what's best. Miller Lite has great taste and it's less filling. Tastes like Miller time. To get Miller Lite delivered right to your door, visit MillerLite.com slash Conan. Or you can find it pretty much anywhere that sells beer. Yeah. Celebrate responsibly. Miller Brewing Company, Milwaukee, Wisconsin. 96 calories per 12 ounces. Fewer cows and carbs than premium regular beer. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all sometimes have issues or things we need to talk about, get off our chest. I have that all the time. Don't you, Sona? I do. Yeah, and we need people to talk to. And we carry around different stressors. We carry big stressors. We carry small stressors. Uh, I was raised in a culture where you're supposed to kind of bottle it up, and I've learned over time that that's not the best thing to do. If you do let things rattle around in there for a while without talking it out, it can affect your life very negatively. Well, therapy is a safe space where you can get things off your chest, figure out how to work through whatever is weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. BetterHelp's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. A lot of people have a barrier towards getting therapy because they think, well, I don't know, I've got to find the person, talk to them. What if I, it's not a good match, I, then it's awkward. None of that. You just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and then you switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. So get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash Conan today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash Conan. It's interesting that you don't give into this, but if today or tomorrow you started on your show just saying, I'm sorry, I I can't take this anymore, it's bullshit, I'm so mad at 
this aspect of American politics and you started using four letter words and, and tweeting raw emotions and saying, this is just who I am, deal with it. Um, there'd be so many people to be like, yes, this is oh, fantastic. Totally. Uh, this yeah. is, yeah, go Anderson, go. And you stopped wearing a, a suit and tie and you looked disheveled and you just were muttering and angry. Uh, it's a little bit of like that movie Network where there's a, a visceral response in our culture now to, if you're not melting down, people don't think you're being real which I think is kind of strange a little bit because is that really our only choice? <laughs> yes. Meltdown melt yeah. or be a phony, that's, that's it? I also think it's the people who are, are encouraging that, you know, it's people who are on Twitter and the people who do that end up reading on, tw you know, they're on Twitter and they, they, they're very engaged with Twitter and you start to believe that that is actually a representation of human beings uh, in this country or on this planet. And it's really not. It's just like a Twitter is its own sort of universe of it's the same people over and over again, kind of having the same arguments. Yes. I stop. I mean, I don't, I don't engage with it really at all anymore. Um, I mean, I'm not still technically on there, but I rarely ever tweet anything. I, I'm, and I'm not, I used to be on Twitter and I used to feel this, I would, somebody would say something against me and I felt like, oh, I've got to respond to this. And the truth is actually, no, you don't like this. Okay. This is somebody's opinion. Like tomorrow there'll be somebody else who has a different opinion or 30 seconds there will be. And, um, you know, I, I just, it has nothing to do with real life. I feel like my life got much better when I stopped looking at Twitter. Yeah. You've gone through a huge life change not too long ago when your son was born, Wyatt. I think that this would have, because it's it's interesting when I first got to know you and all the times I would see you, I always thought, man, Anderson Cooper has got like this, this perfect life in so many ways. Uh, and, and, and you have all this freedom and it's such a massive change when a mm. child shows up. And I, I'm curious how you feel like that has affected you. You know, um, I've wanted to have a child for, like most of my life. I mean, from the, when I was a little kid, I wanted to have a family. I dreamed about, I, I really, uh, my dad was a great dad, you know, I think because he died when I was 10 years old and he was 50. Uh, the idea of have, building my own family was, you know, became mm -hmm. really important to mm -hmm. me as a kid. And I didn't think as a gay person, it just didn't, that, that was one of the reasons I was kind of initially disappointed that I was gay or unhappy about realizing I was gay when I was a, you know, nine or 10 years old because I thought, oh, well, this means I can't have a family. Mm -hmm. um, so the suddenly to realize, you know, to be in a place where I'm stable enough and, and you know, in financially and mentally and uh, able to actually do that and, and actually bring somebody into the world. And it's, um, it's fantastic. How the hell do you baby proof a firehouse? Oh, Jesus. Oh my God. I'm, you know what? I, that's a good question. I do not know the answer to that. Uh, right now I will tell you there's a spiral steel staircase, yep. which is very difficult. I bought basically deer fencing right now. <laughs> this is, I don't know how to do I, I'm going to have there to hire There are people that do this, Anderson. Baby. I know, but it's like a ripoff. It's a complete ripoff, I'm sure. I know, but- And, they, and as soon as it's, they hear it's me and a firehouse, they're going to like just charge yeah, a fortune. Yeah, okay, yes. but here's the so problem. I got deer fencing around most of the, <laughs> the- It doesn't look great, I give you that, but- Right now he's isolated to the fourth floor and that floor- <laughs> That sounds emotionally healthy. 
I've isolated well, you know, he's him. He's just naturally pale, so no one will know he's never yeah. seen this. I song. love that you're saying like, I won't be brought up in this crazy, strange environments <laughs> that the Vanderbilts were brought up in. Where do you live? A firehouse. But don't worry, my son is strapped to the fourth floor. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No. It's actually also it's on all the haunted house tours of New York That's great. because uh, the firemen before I was there made up a story that it was haunted. Right. And so yeah. Now it's so, in there. Um, every. That well, I will tell you, once I went on a getaway when our daughter was very, like our daughter was six months old, I think. And my wife and I were invited to a wedding in Hawaii and we decided to go. And it was during my week off, flew to Hawaii and we got there and we had rented this little house. All the furniture was modern with sharp edges. And my daughter was just <laughs> learning to walk and toddling around with her giant Oof. light bulb head that hadn't, and the, the, the skull hadn't finished forming yet. I freaked out and I spent the entire week, there was a Home Depot that was, yeah. I think 45 minutes away by car. And I would drive there and buy foam, drive back, strap it around everything I could find, realize I needed more foam. And, and so I spent a week in Hawaii. I drove through like nine time zones just to cover the entire house in foam. Uh, it was an absolutely miserable experience. And uh, I will do the same for you anytime at your firehouse. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate it. Um, I have put safety guards on the, co I installed covers over the poles. Because of course I live in a firehouse, so there's poles oh, on every oh, floor to oh, slide so, oh, down. Oh, Anderson, so what you're saying is, congratulations, <laughs> good for you. You're a hero. You covered up the hole in the floor. <laughs> your firehouse to protect your yeah. newborn son. You know, I'm a really good dad. Oh, what was that? Well, we live in a missile silo, but I covered the warhead with foam. <laughs> so I'd like a dad of the year award, please. But, but then, but you know, I grew up in a very, uh, in a house that was not baby proofed at all. Right. And, and and look at us, we did fine. Yeah, you're right. You're right. Actually, <laughs> it's not a good, good example. <laughs> look at me, Anderson, I'm fine. <laughs> I see both sides of it. My parents uh, were, well, yeah, but they were relatively old for the time when my mom was 43 when she had me and that was 1967. And at the time that was pretty... Pretty rare. I actually, she actually, I only recently discovered my mom had, for, uh, was having, had to have fertility treatments in order to have me. And she, the, the stuff that she was supposed, that her doctor said would be good for her to use was not yet legal in America. So she flew to Switzerland and, stayed at Charlie Chaplin's house and his wife, Una, who was my mom's best friend. As man. one does when one wants to have a baby. <laughs> they had a friend who bought these drugs, these fertility drugs in Rome, flew to Veve, Switzerland, and Charlie Chaplin and Una Chaplin helped strap these illegal fertility drugs around my mom's stomach and she smuggled them back into the United States in order to have me. This is unbelievable because I'm, this opens up, I was going to get to this, but- You've opened this box and now we will go there because you can't just drop in conversation. Yes, my mother in 1967 wanted to have a child. So she uh, flew to stay with Charlie Chaplin <laughs> in Europe and he helped her. And I'm picturing him with the little mustache and the cane as the little tramp uh, helped her. It looks like a- He silently he strapped si He silently and with- With great uh, exclamation marks yeah. and stuff. And then the screen goes black. Now, Oh, sit still while I strap <laughs> while I strap the uh, fertility drugs to your waist, uh, Mrs. Vanderbilt. Um, well, this this brings up, of course, the 
second area that I wanted to talk about, which is um, you have come out with this book, which I really enjoyed, Vanderbilt, and it's uh, the rise and fall of an American dynasty. Uh, you worked on this uh, with Catherine Howe, and uh, it's really such a fascinating story. Man, this book is fantastic. And of course, you're writing this story uh, because you are a direct descendant of the great Vanderbilt. Is it Cornelius? Is that, no, that's not Cornelius. Yeah, yeah. Cornelius, yeah. yeah. Cornelius, they call him the Commodore. Yeah, the Commodore, um, right. He, who's yeah. just an insane story of a kid. Insane. A kid who, I mean- Yeah, so he, he's born in like the late 1700s, right. um, you know, years after the revolution. He grows up in Staten Island. At 11, he drops out of school. He can barely read or write for the rest of his life. At 11, he starts working on a small little boat that his dad has ferrying supplies from Staten Island to Manhattan. Uh, and it's a, a shallow bottom boat that you use a pole to actually push in the shallow parts of the water. And then it's got a sail. You can sail it in the deeper parts of the water. And he, at age 16, his dad, you know, never makes a lot of money. They're grown up on, on a, a subsistence farm in Staten Island. But this, this 11 year old kid, Cornelius Vanderbilt, uh, has a mania for money. He has a pathological desire to amass money from the time he's very little. He, he gets a loan from his mom. Uh, he does some work in order to get a loan from his mom. She buys him a small boat for, uh, like a, you know, very small boat to ferry supplies. Within two years, he runs his dad out of business. And he then ultimately, over several decades, builds a steamship empire. Steamships were the, the cutting edge technology of the day, running supplies and passengers to Manhattan, but also all up and down the seaboard. He uh, builds a, uh, a ship route through Nicaragua to get to the West Coast. He was a ruthless, uh, money-obsessed, power-hungry guy. And it's all he cared about. He didn't care about the children he had. Mostly, he didn't care about the daughters he right. had because they wouldn't carry the Vanderbilt name. He uh, sent his own wife to a lunatic asylum, as they called them then, so he could stop the babysitter. Um, he sent his own son to a lunatic asylum twice, had him committed. And then late in life, he dies at 1877. Late in life, he starts a second fortune. He starts buying small railroads, which was the new technology at the time, and amasses uh, builds a company out of all these little small disparate railroads that basically controls all travel on the eastern seaboard as far uh, west as, as Chicago and dies in 1877 with more money than anybody in the world ever had amassed. It was $100 million, which uh, may not sound like a lot today, but it was one out of every $20 in circulation. Yeah. It was more money than was in the U.S. Treasury. It was um – you're a great, 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 great grandson. Is that correct? Yes. Five, uh, it was. They were five. Generations I made sure ago, to say say it five times. I'm precise about everything. <laughs> um, and what this book chronicles, which it's a tale as old as time, is just how much misery all this money brought and the pathology of yes. it. To me, that was what was. I see. I I grew up not knowing anything about the Vanderbilts. I knew my mom's last name was was, was Vanderbilt, um, but. You know, my dad was a cooper. He grew up poor on a farm in Mississippi. And I knew the Vanderbilts were, you know, had been really rich and that there were some houses that were now museums. And I knew my mom had a kind of tortured childhood experience with that family. And so she, there weren't any like cousins that I knew or anything because she really had a like a fractured relationship. And so as a kid, I sensed early on, like no good can come 
of aligning myself with the Vanderbilt side, like of thinking of myself in that right. way. Like the, what I know about them is they didn't really work a lot and they spent all this money and then they didn't have any more money. But it's really a tale of how the sort of pathology over money that the Commodore had infected the yeah. subsequent generations. Well, there's so much misery. There's so much fighting over the money that just destroys generations and creates all this misery and, and bad feeling and inflated expectation. And then what's fascinating to me is that there was an assumption when your mom passed away that, oh, Anderson now is going to be getting this huge inheritance. And I remember seeing right. uh, speculation online, uh, you right, know, that- yeah. I read $200 million. Right, That's what right. I read. That's around yeah. the time I started uh, asking you for a loan. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to buy my own ferry boat and start moving goods across Staten Island. <laughs> but, but yeah, people were hearing that, oh yes, well, you must now be getting hundreds of millions of dollars, uh, which right. was not the case at all. Right. Yeah. My, my Both my mom and dad sat me down early on when I was like, you know, eight or something and explained, you know, you're probably going to hear people who think that you have a huge, you know, pot of money. And, uh, you know, we want you to know that, you know, your mom came from this family and, uh, you know, and she's worked hard and she has, uh, you know, we're able to pay for your, will be able to pay for your college. But after college, that's it. There's not going to be any kind of inheritance. There's no trust fund for you. There's nothing for you and your brother. And I was like, fine. Well, I mean, I didn't even really know what that was at the time. I was just like, you know, okay, well, that seems pretty normal and that's cool. Um, but it was always interesting to me because throughout my life, people kind of made this assumption that there was some sort of right. like, I, I remember being on Oprah Winfrey's show one time, uh, the first time I wrote a book and, and the first time I was on that show and, you know, and she said, well, you know, it's so fascinating because you really don't have to work. And I was like, really? Uh, that's news to me. Like, yeah. I, I mean, I mean, A, I love work, but also- I think in that case, Oprah was talking about herself. Because <laughs> Oprah really doesn't have to work. <laughs> I happen to know that as of one year ago, she had enough to retire. And my mom thought it was funny. And my mom, you know, my mom, my mom was the last, my, I, I, I write in the book about, I, sort of my mom was the last Vanderbilt in my, I mean, there's others who still have the name and they're members of the family who are out there and they're very nice people and, and they're doing good things with their lives. But my mom was was the last to really have been born into that other world. When I was a kid, I always viewed my mom as this creature from like a distant star from a galaxy that had burned out long ago. And her spaceship had stranded here on Earth in this time. And my job, it was like E.T. My job was to like take care of her, get, like have her help her pay rent and uh, learn how to breathe oxygen well, and communicate. You, you were also um, very late in her life. You know, you were helping to support her. Um, when she was, you know, uh, needed help, needed, uh, you know, people to, you were using your income to help support your mom, which flips the script yeah. on what probably a lot of people would expect, which is, well, she's got maids and servants taking care of her. And well, you were paying for nurses, you were paying for all of that. Yeah, that's true. I mean, I was, ha I'm, I was happy to be in a position to be able to help. I, you know, I, my entire life, I viewed my job. At, I was very sympathetic to my mom from the time I was little. She was, she was an extraordinary, amazing person. Um, and, you know, obviously I, I loved her, um, but she really was sort of from this other world and she was incredibly modern and engaged with current times, of, of course. Um, but she really was like the most trusting person. Mm -hmm. She got screwed over by so many people in her life. You know, a psychiatrist defrauded her, uh, her lawyer defrauded her. 
Um, and, you know, I, from the time I was a little kid, I was sort of advising her on like, this person doesn't seem trustworthy or, you know, this doesn't seem like a good idea. And I viewed that as my role, you know, throughout, throughout her life to, you know, to try to protect her from her own impulses as well as, as, you know, other people. You know, I, that's one of the things that does come across is that in the book, Vanderbilt, you see so many people uh, in your family tree whose lives were ruined because they made it all about the money. And I really got the sense that your mom, she didn't worship money for its own sake. She wasn't that interested in it. She enjoyed things, but I think she, I got the sense she really enjoyed people. She really enjoyed experiences. There were times when I think money could provide or help her have those experiences, but I didn't get the sense that she cared about it in that way. She wasn't avaricious about it. She never, I mean, she never talked about it. It wasn't even like, she. it just was not in, you know, she had been able to live a life through much of her life where it wasn't an issue. It was, it was, there was money there and some accountant was, you know, losing sleep at night, seeing that it was dwindling, but my mom wasn't. She, my mom just was living her life. And I think we probably both know, you know, some people who are extremely, you know, bizarrely wealthy who talk about nothing else other than how wealthy they are and the painting that they just bought and how much they got it for. And then they sold it back to somebody for, t- you know, far more. And then that person went broke and then they bought it back, you know, and by the it, way, that's my dream. <laughs> my dream is to be that guy. I, 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 I want to um, sell, I want to bankrupt Gourley and then yeah. buy a painting back from him that I sold him. And then I want to, <laughs> I want to level your house Gourley and build another house on it that I just keep one sneaker in. That's what I want to do. Cause I've got a Vanderbilt streak in me a mile wide. I want to squat in that sneaker house and just live in an old shoe. <laughs> but I have to say there's, there's a uh, part of this book, which just because there's part of the book that I wanted to quote from because you, you come from such an interesting family and your mom came from such this, this fascinating lineage. There's almost a Citizen Kane moment because at the end of Citizen Kane, you see everything he collected through his life and your mom held on to everything. She held on to every scrap. And then at one point in the book, you realize you start going through your mom's stuff and you said, it's fascinating because you never know what you're going to get. You open one box and it's a chandelier. You open another box and it's Rice Krispies from 1953. (laughs) (laughs) And then you open another box and it's letters from Gordon Parks or Roald Dahl, just extraordinary history. So the only thing that grabbed me is, did you find a box of Rice Krispies from 1953? (laughs) Oh, absolutely. Yes. I think it might've been cornflakes actually. Ah, Good. That was um, a good year for cornflakes. That's a a fine vintage. Yeah. No, my mom, my mom moved constantly because she always like, she was never, she was very restless and she couldn't sit still and she was always sort of decorating homes and then selling them and then finding something else and that the the new place would would solve all the problems that she you know felt and she would move into the new place and of course realize that's not where the problem lay and so you know it would the, the process would repeat but she things were constantly being packed up and sent out to this storage unit yeah. that I'd never heard like when I was a kid I all I heard about was this storage unit and I really I did when I saw Citizen Kane that became in my mind what the storage unit was wow. like and that there was this furnace that was just burning money the entire time. <laughs> and every night when I was like 11 years old, I used to sit in my bed. I was, I would try to stay up to watch, uh, 
It was Letterman, the original yep. Letterman show yep. uh, back then. And I would try to stay up to watch that. And I would stay up just full of anxiety about the the money that was just being burned in the storage unit and uh, and how much I would have to make in my life in order to like take care of my mom and take care of the people in my life and, you know, make sure if a friend of mine got sick, I could take care of them. Like that's what I spent my childhood thinking about. I was obsessed with how people made a living. And I started working from the time I was like 13 yeah. in order to like start saving money. Cause I knew my mom, you know, was just chucking stuff in that furnace and it was just burning away. It's fascinating to me that you're describing worrying about your mom as a kid, and obviously uh, you and your mom went through that, the trauma of, of losing your brother tragically, and this all, I think, weighing on you to this degree that you, I don't know, it gave you a rocket fuel in some way. Yeah, yeah, I mean, 100%. It, I mean, it was, yeah, it was the, the you know, the rage of my dad dying when I was a kid and the situation I was in of not having any control over, you know, the, you know, my mom was great, but uh, it was extraordinary. And I was, I had a very privileged upbringing, but you know, when you're 11, you shouldn't feel like you're the one in needing to right the ship and, yep. and, you know, steer the, the boat um, or, or at least have a hand on the rudder. Um, that's all the boat analogies I can make. Uh, but, but, uh, but yeah, it was definitely fuel. Uh, it propelled me forward and, and both my mom and I had this sort of ability to propel ourselves forward through things. My mom, through her childhood, I, I did the same thing. My mom just never had a plan. And I learned from that. And I realized from a very young age, like I need to make a plan and going, being a reporter wasn't the objective. The objective was, uh, to learn how to survive yeah. and to go to places where people were where survival was an issue for people in war zones and and uh, and to to see to teach myself that I could survive in any circumstance and that I would be able to propel myself. What's forward. fascinating now is you have obviously this this boy Wyatt, and what do you want for him? You want the opposite for him. You don't want him to have that right. anxiety. You don't want totally. him staying up late worrying, how am I gonna take care of dad and help him to make better decisions? You don't want him to feel that. And yet at the same time, you can recognize how those things were fuel for you. It's, it's, it's. Yeah. It, that's so true. It's really interesting you say that. I mean, it, I've been, I think about that a lot. On the one hand, I don't, you know, my lesson, one of the takeaways for me in just doing this research on on this book, Vanderbilt, is not wanting to, uh, I, I think my parents were right to say to me at a young age, look, you, your college will be paid for. But after that, yep. you know, you're going to have to figure out your own way and, and you know, we'll emotionally help you and we're there and right. w whatever. But um, I think had they said, oh, yeah, there's a, you know, there's a, a pot of gold waiting for you when you hit age 25. Yep. I don't th I think it would have changed the way I thought about myself and changed the drive I don't know that I would have had that kind of a, a drive or maybe it would have, I would have had the same kind of rage, but it would have, it would have been funneled in a self-destructive direction as opposed to uh, I need to work really hard and, and propel myself right, forward. Right. Um, and, and yet on the same hand, you're right. I don't want my son to have the, you know, the, that anxiety or that fear or that, that draw, that sense of catastrophe uh, that is what has propelled me. So I want to figure out some, way some way with him and break that break this sort of cycle and um and for me part writing the book was really i dedicated it to him yeah. because it's really 
I want him to read it and kind of understand, you know, what the options are and what what the what the best and worst case scenarios. Well, the book is terrific. Uh, congratulations, uh, Vanderbilt. And I did get the sense that reading it, that it's a it's a great historical account, but it's also I would think therapeutic because I know that you spent the majority of your life not wanting to face this side of your family tree and wanting to make it as Anderson Cooper. And I, I think it's very healthy on some level to acknowledge all this, especially now that mm. you have a son. So I, I, I think it's great to close that circle. This is me giving you, I, I am not a certified therapist. <laughs> In fact, most of my advice is bad, <laughs> but um, I'm happy for you. And uh, I really would like it if you, when you get to LA, and I know exactly what you're talking about because I don't contact anybody when I get to New York. I never think anyone wants to break bread with me, but I would really like it. It would up my street cred inordinately uh, I if, will you, if you gave me, uh, drop me a line the next time you're in town and you could come uh, to our house and- uh, and watch my wife make fun of me. That sounds like an ideal evening. I, I would, I promise I will do that. Cause you, you've now convinced me enough that I at least have the courage to at least send a text and say, hey, I'm here, but look, I know you're busy. Don't worry about it. And, and I'm just gonna say this right now. When I send you the text, don't worry about it. If you can't do anything, that's fine. Just, just Oh, I'm going to so, blow you off. I am go I'm going to blow you yeah, off. Okay, good. Because it's just, <laughs> just do it. I'm, I'm, this whole point of this podcast is to convince people, really convince them <laughs> that they should get closer to me. And then that's my chance to totally screw them over uh, and ghost them. Ghost them for a long, long time. Well played, O'Brien. <laughs> <laughs> In my own way, I'm a lot like Cornelius Vanderbilt. Yes, Only I've made- Ruthless. <laughs> ruthless. That Conan hit on. Mania for money. <laughs> Mania for money and a desire to destroy all those around him. Um, <laughs> hey, Anderson, this was a delight. It really was. Thank you for doing this. Thank you. I, it's, it's really, uh, I'm so glad you're doing it. Thank you. You know, it's incredible to have the flexibility to work in all sorts of places, whether it's taking video calls from the park or emailing large files while you're grocery shopping. Sona, this is good for you. Is it? Because you're always doing whatever work you do for me from fun locations. But I like blaming it on not having reception. I know, but you can't do that here. Working on the go seamlessly requires a strong network, which is why you should check out T-Mobile, Sona. Okay. Then you got no excuses. They're America's largest and fastest 5G network. With T-Mobile, you'll be covered in more places with the 5G speed you need for your life on the go. Plus, they also cover more highway miles with 5G than anybody else. Check it out if you don't believe me. Hey, Blay, you've got T-Mobile, right? I do. I was actually just up in the woods in Idlewild. It was fantastic for the weekend. And uh, my T-Mobile didn't miss it. My T-Mobile phone didn't miss it. You know, beat. I wouldn't think you'd need a cell phone because you speak so loudly into a microphone. <laughs> well, I had to look some stuff up. Just take Sorry. it. Just take it down. I didn't know what brunch was. I can hear him. When the restaurant's open for brunch. Okay. Uh, so I used uh, my T-Mobile coverage to check out brunch. Way. That's brunch. all right. Anyway, wherever you are, you know, take it from the loudspeaking Blay. If you're on the go, you want to be in the know, you want to make the show. What? Uh, T-Mobile. Okay. That's the one for you. That was I should weird. have rhymed it with go. Anyway, <laughs> find out more at T-Mobile.com slash network today. Coverage not available in some areas. Fastest based on median overall combined 5G speeds according to analysis by Ookla of Speed Test Intelligence Data Q3 2023. C5G device coverage and access details at T-Mobile.com.
on. If most people are being honest, no one really knows what you do for work, right? Yeah, it's true. Yeah, especially if you're in a, what I like to call B2B. Oh, you know? what, what is that? I'll explain. Okay. That's a business doing business with other businesses. You okay. know what I'm saying? Yeah. I call it B2B. It's a little thing. It's also, uh, it's a boy band I'm working on. <laughs> anyway, fortunately, LinkedIn has a network of professionals who get what you do and you can reach the right people who matter most to your company because they're LinkedIn. Yeah. That's what they do. Yeah. LinkedIn has over, this is the fun part to say, one billion members. Are you serious? Yeah. That's not that's more people than are on Earth because there are people on the moon using it and Saturn. <laughs> that's one over one billion members on its platform, including 70 million decision makers. God, I'd like to meet a decision maker. Since LinkedIn members are regularly updating their work history, you can precisely build a target audience by job title, industry, company, and more. Man, you can reach the right people for your, I'm going to say it again, B2B business with LinkedIn ads. Yeah. Gets even better because LinkedIn will give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Hmm. There you go. Just go to linkedin.com slash Team Coco to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash Team Coco. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. You know, it's been a while since we've uh, done some voicemails where the listeners call in and ask you a question. You guys want to do one? Well, why should I care what the listener thinks? <laughs> this is the voice of the people you, you serve. Yeah, them. but I think I'm a Roman emperor gone mad. I'm your Nero or Caligula. <laughs> I do too. <laughs> I have no concern for what the people want. I just want to play my fiddle, uh, make a horse a senator, and uh, go completely insane from syphilis and really bad wine. <laughs> Uh, while Rome burns around me, but well, maybe I, you can listen to them and just taunt them. And yes, it thank you to like like brush. All it right, off here's what I'm I'm picturing everything. myself now as one of the Caesars, and I've got my little laurel crown, and I'm sitting, and I'm here with uh, David, mm -hmm. who's a scribe. You know, you're one of the scribes that sits at the. David is f fanning you with a pot yeah, yeah. right now, just feeding you. Yeah, grapes. feeding me figs and grapes, and um, out of a feeling of generosity, once once a year. Once every 10 <laughs> Once years, year. I let uh, one or two citizens come in and tell me something. And so um, you are now uh, just a very lowly, lowly worker in the palace, uh, Matt. Who, me? Yeah. Whoa. Oh, I'm the triumphant warrior, Mark Antony, come back from Egypt to deliver the Vox Populi. He was ready oh, with that. Oh, wow. You he were ready. ready to go. Okay, so yeah. you are Mark Antony. Uh, fresh from the battlefield, one of the highest ranking Romans of all times, uh, uh, beloved by the people, and your job is to play a voicemail for me. Go ahead. Wow. Okay. Play the voicemail, Mark Anthony. <laughs> fresh from Cleopatra's boudoir. Here we go. Hi, Conan. Hi, Sona and Matt. I'm a huge fan of the show. Um, I have a question. I am recently rereading the Harry Potter series and I was reading the description of Ron Weasley. He's a tall redhead who's in the middle of like several children and he's awkward. He's funny, kind of comic relief. He's always sort of just part of all the stories. He's hilarious Conan, I couldn't help but think of you as I was reading this uh, after having listened to the podcast and watching all of your just old clips on YouTube recently. So I'm wondering, 
Have you, when you've ever read the Harry Potter series or watched the movies, identified with Ron Weasley? I hope to hear back from you all soon. Bye-bye. All right. I have an immediate response to this. <laughs> okay. First of all, I'm glad you brought this up because this is a longstanding lawsuit uh, I have with the Harry Potter people because I think I was ripped off. I immediately <laughs> identified this. I immediately identified this. I didn't read the books. When the books came out, I didn't read the books. Um, but when the movies came out and I saw that Ron, first of all, I said, when did they, how did they shoot me as a child? I was confused. <laughs> how did they digitally put me into a movie? But yes, Ron Weasley is taking all of my moves. The middle child, the red hair, the freckles, the awkwardness, but that indelible charm that endures year after year. Yeah, I, I was enraged and so... I lawyered up, we got into it, and it has not gone anywhere. The lawsuit's been going on, well, at least on my end. They don't even pick up my calls anymore, but I've put tens of thousands of dollars into this. And uh, yeah, uh, Ron Weasley's going down. You can't do that. You can't steal a, a beloved American icon and just jam him into a fantasy world without some I payment. agree with you. Mm -hmm. And I think that it, it gets even deeper. And I think there's a big conspiracy because I'm about to share a picture with you that somebody pointed out when you really look at the whole Harry Potter universe at large, that's you, me, and Sona. That is, <laughs> that is, that's Sona. That's, that's you. And also I love that Sona is brazen. You know, you have that defiant cross your arms. I've got a very nice arts and crafts house in Pasadena. <laughs> And then look at me, I'm just the sweet goofball holding it all together. Not a mean bone in my body. You know what else I'll tell you something? I did, before I figured out my hair situation, cut to everyone listening to this, did you ever figure out your hair situation, Conan? Um, but up until I was about 16, 17 years old, I, I parted my hair in the middle, a la Ron Weasley. So wow. they ripped that off too. They clearly got pictures of me from uh, the Driscoll Elementary School in Brookline, Massachusetts in the 70s and exactly copied my look. Yeah, you did nothing a la Ron Weasley. No, no. Ron Weasley did everything a la Conan. Yeah, I remember, well, there's actually, and this is something I found through the lawsuit, my lawyers found footage of the actor who eventually got the part of Ron Weasley. Mm -hmm. and, there's, and there's pictures of him auditioning and he's like, oh, which way you want me to go with this? And they're like, uh, Ron, uh, sorry, we're going to call you Ron because uh, for the purposes of this, uh, purposes of this, you know, audition. Uh, Ron, could you please, uh, we'd like you to give it a little bit of a, what well, we're thinking Conan O'Brien, the American chat show host. Oh, Conan O'Brien, not familiar with him. They don't have NBC over in the UK. Yes, 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 yes. I, I understand. But uh, let's tell you, it's hair part in the middle, very red. You're awkward, but you're also beloved. Uh, you're not the one that gets the girl, but you're, or really anybody, but uh, that's more the idea of it. You see, you don't draw focus from Harry Potter, but you're quite the star on your own right. You understand? All right. I'll be Visconian O'Brien if you want me. Ron Weasley's in the Sex Pistols? Well, he comes from a very, very rough neighborhood in <laughs> Manchester. And yes, he did play bass in a band called the Fucking Skulls for a while when he was four, four and five years old. And so, yeah, 
whatever. <laughs> and so I would like some compensation and I've looked into it and I think there's, I think there's some profit there. I think between the books yeah. and the movies and the theme parks, there's some profit. And as a child, I played Quidditch. Oh, uh, oh. yeah. Like on, we on didn't a call it and everything? We didn't call it Quidditch. What'd you call it? What'd you call it? Uh, we called it Crotch Broom Fun. Oh. <laughs> oh, wait, that's a that's, different game. Oh, forget yeah. it. You're right. I'm okay. thinking about it now. That was a different thing. <laughs> I used to look at dirty magazines and rub a broom between my legs. <laughs> okay. Oh, no, Ron. Um, sorry, did I go too far? You. I think you had crossed the, no. the line. With I don't think I did cross the line. Okay. That's something podcast. a lot of young kids did back then in the Boston mm. area. Just ask any mm. one of my vintage. There, it was different times. We didn't have an internet. So you had to grab a broom <laughs> and uh, get a little friction going there. No. And then watch a nat- look at a National Geographic. Or Anyway, let's get back to the <sighs> important thing. And, and you can edit as you will. Um, you always do. No, I think that stays in for the record. All right. That's more of a confession than anything else. Yeah, that's another thing, too. I, one of the reasons I wanted to sue the actor uh, who uh, played Ron Weasley is that his name is Rupert Grint. It's the lawsuit is O'Brien v. Grint. Isn't that great? <laughs> that's a, yeah. 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 O'Brien v. Grint. And what I do is I like to sue people just to see how it looks in court and on the court documents. O'Brien v. Grint. And I'm coming hard for this guy. So I just want to, so you're suing the actor, not- I decided- uh, Not Harry Potter, the J.K. Rowling. No, no. I'm not going to go after, what is it? Uh, Warner Brothers or Universal or one of those giant companies. I'm not going to go after them and I'm not going to go after J.K. Rowling. She has an army of golden robots that protect her. That's not going to happen. <laughs> no, go after Rupert Grint. He's the one who probably doesn't have, I mean, I'm sure he did fine. You know, I'm sure he's got a nice fish and chip shop somewhere. You know, <laughs> oh, come on in. Get yourself some fish and chips if you like. The oh, it's the Bosch, Bosch traveling life to traveling life for me. First cab and cap the quarters, real company. Pour up, starboard home, push with a couple to P O S H. I was Ron Weasley. That's how he ends all his songs. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> I come after him, and then what happens is he's the one that squeals, and then I get his fish and chip shop. Mm. Yeah. You and then I said you wanted one. Yeah. And then I make it gluten free, and we don't fry the fish, <laughs> and people, and there's no chips. It's super healthy. Oh. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. It's just uh, asparagus, asparagus stalks wrapped in a newspaper. Um, <laughs> I hope that part of your lawsuit is they have to redo all of his scenes with you doing yes! that. Yes. Oh, That's fantastic. Yes. Oh, and trust me, I've been practicing at home. Oh, you've got powers, Harry. See, he's cleaned up his accent a little bit from what uh-huh. he really talks like. Yeah, that's yeah. nice. Harry, whoa, you got a thunderbolt on your forehead. That's daft it is. <laughs> what? A flying car? I'll get in it with you. We missed the train. We can take the flying car. Ah, oh, look at Hagrid. He's larger than us. <laughs> Harry, I know you like that girl, but maybe in later episodes, I'll be the one that ends up with her. Isn't that what happened? Mm-hmm. I think so. Yeah. yeah. Who saw that coming? See? Hermione eventually ends up with Rupert Grint, a.k.a. Say it. Ron Weasley. Exactly. I'm going to make you AKA participate. Conan O'Brien. Yeah, I think that's another thing to point out. Another similarity is that although I'm kind of the joke in the earlier episodes of my life, mm-hmm. later on, Hermione chooses me. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah. or- You're the sleeper leading man. Exactly. That's my point. My point is when a Conan O'Brien sticks around long enough, and that's called pulling a Conan O'Brien. You stick around long enough, and then at the end, 
The heroine chooses you. Because you're literally the only person left in the room. Is that what, why do oh, I, wow. is that what you why? mean? Why? Why do you do this? <laughs> I just, I'm asking. And then you wonder why the emperor only talks to people once every decade. <laughs> Well, listeners, you can check out that photo uh, at Team Coco Podcasts on Instagram. Yes, and if you believe in my lawsuit and you want to help me, let's get something going online. It's O'Brien <laughs> v. Grint. I want my money. I want yeah. my freaking money, and I'm going to get it. They know what let's they did. Let's get it to the Supreme Court. I'll take it to the Supreme mm. Court. They're not doing much good these days. Yeah. Sorry, things got dark. Conan O'Brien needs a friend. With Conan O'Brien, Sonam Obsessian, and Matt Gorley. Produced by me, Matt Gorley. Executive produced by Adam Sachs, Joanna Solitaroff, and Jeff Ross at Team Coco, and Colin Anderson and Cody Fisher at Earwolf. Theme song by The White Stripes. Incidental music by Jimmy Vivino. Take it away, Jimmy. Our supervising producer is Aaron Blair, and our associate talent producer is Jennifer Samples. Engineering by Will Beckton. Talent booking by Paula Davis, Gina Batista, and Britt Kahn. You can rate and review this show on Apple Podcasts, and you might find your review read on a future episode. Got a question for Conan? Call the Team Coco hotline at 323-451-2821 and leave a message. It, too, could be featured on a future episode. And if you haven't already, please subscribe to Conan O'Brien Needs a Friend on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever fine podcasts are downloaded. has been a Team Coco production in association with Earwolf. With chocolate treats mixed into dark chocolate ice cream, the Tillamook Chocolate Collection is a chocolate game changer because the thing that pairs best with chocolate is more chocolate. Tillamook Chocolate Collection Ice Cream. Extraordinary Dairy. Emmy Award-winning John Mulaney presents Everybody's in L.A., a special run of six live episodes created by and starring Mulaney that'll stream live on Netflix during the Netflix is a Joke Fest. The comically unconventional show will feature special guests where John Mulaney explores the city of Los Angeles during a week when every funny person is in it. Watch John Mulaney presents Everybody's in L.A., debuting May 3rd live at 7 p.m. Pacific time, only on Netflix.